This episode of the People of PCPS is brought to you through the generous support of Joe Fisher's office at Mid-State Educators Insurance. For more information, visit insurepolk.com. Welcome to the People of PCPS, a Polk County Public Schools podcast. This podcast is dedicated to telling the stories of teachers, paraeducators, support staff, students, volunteers, alumni, and all the people who contribute to Polk County Public Schools. Whether they're working in the school district, learning in our classrooms, or using their education to improve our community, the people are what make Polk County Public Schools great. Let's get to know our colleagues, our students, our neighbors, and our friends, the people of PCPS. Hi everyone, I'm Rachel Pleasant, Senior Director of Communications at Polk County Public Schools, and welcome to People of PCPS. This is a podcast we've created simply to get to know the people of our organization, to learn more about what they do and what they contribute to our school district. And I am so happy today to have with us Christy Olson, who is the Senior Coordinator of Mental Health Services here at the district. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, and Christy has uh, experiences unlike most people in this district and is doing work that is truly changing and saving lives in many cases. So welcome, Christy, to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Christy, can you give um, our listeners, can you just give them an overview of what it means to oversee mental health services for the school district? Well, an overview of that. Wow. Um, Should I start with how it started with Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Okay. Um, The Department of Behavior and Mental Health came out of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public School Safety Act. That's a mouthful. Um, And because of that, they created the mental health allocation. And the Department of Behavior and Mental Health came into fruition like two years ago. And we were able to hire a group of mental health facilitators um, that help serve students in the schools. They provide direct service. They do groups. They do all kinds of things with the students of Polk County. Now, you had been a school counselor with the district for some time before the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas legislation and the the shootings themselves, correct? When did you start with the school district? I started about 15 years ago, and I started as an elementary counselor at Spook Hill Elementary. And so before we go focus on your, your what you do today, let's just, how did you come to decide on the field of school counseling? Why was that something that you felt you wanted to do with your life? Okay, that's, that's a big one there. <laughs> Why did I decide to do? Some days I still wonder um, <laughs> if I have completely decided what I'm going to do with my life. But um, it started with um, my family had some mental illness, mm-hmm. and I think all families do. We all have issues. Families have issues. Individuals have issues. Um, and I didn't recognize it as such when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, I realized that that's what it was, was mental illness. And it um, not only intrigued me and wanted me, I wanted to learn more, but also um, I was the one that people would just come to. I was the one my parents would come to when they would disagree with something. I was the one that my aunts and uncles would come to when they needed help with something. It was always, I was the mediator. I was the problem solver. So it was just kind of a natural fit as I got older to um, find this field. And you you mentioned that you would, you recognize that students just sometimes need somebody to talk to, right? And then that can 
alleviate yes. stress and anxiety and allow them to focus on their studies and to, to mm-hmm. learn, right? And so that was that inspired you to be able to do that. Yes, I didn't know at the time, obviously, yeah. but once I started researching and heard about this position that there were, there was such a thing as a school counselor at the time, guidance counselor, I didn't remember having someone like that growing up. Mm-hmm. I didn't remember being able to go to the guidance office and speak to somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really wish that I'd had that opportunity. And I know that um, what we teach now is a stressed out brain can't learn. Mm-hmm. And we know that stress is caused. I mean, we all have stress. We yeah. all suffer from something, um, some type of anxiety or stress or mm-hmm. um, just just mental illness. Right. So you're a school counselor for how many years? For seven to eight years. And then at Park that came. <laughs> no, no. And then I came to the district as the mental health coordinator with a grant called Mindful Schools. Okay. And so you're working at the then district. <laughs> okay. And then Parkland happens. And this proved to be a, um, a pretty life-altering event mm-hmm. for you. Tell us about your involvement, um, sure. with what you, the work you performed in response to Parkland, and how it changed the course of your career. Sure. Um, Part of my job duties was serving on the crisis team. And because of that, I was trained in PREPARE. PREPARE is the advanced crisis model. So when the Parkland shooting happened, they were in need of a lot of counselors to help support those kids. And so um, another person who works for the district, Amy Randall, and I were asked to come to Parkland and help in that crisis response. And being in Parkland and working with those students really made me realize the work we do and how important it is. And so when the mental health allocation came out and this position became available, I just knew that's where I needed to be. And so just Parkland was just a few years ago, but it's hard for those of us who weren't, um, you know, directly involved maybe to develop a picture in our minds of what that must have been like. Can you just tell us about the days you spent with those students and, and you know, what, what they were what you helped them through and how you saw your impact play out while you were doing that work. Sure. Um, (laughs) It's hard to go back there, honestly. But um, what I remember most is the community, how the community just really supported Parkland. And when you pulled up to the school, you knew it. I mean, there were signs everywhere. Um, There were banners there were flowers, there were therapy animals. I mean, it, it was obvious that the community was really pouring in to Parkland and supporting them, which is a good thing. But it also felt for people who weren't impacted, like students who maybe weren't in the ninth grade or weren't there that day or weren't, you know, it almost felt like they couldn't move on. There was just so, so many reminders of what had happened and having all of those people on campus and all of the cameras and um, I think that was a really big impact, just looking around and going, wow, how do you move past this? Um, the other thing I remember is th- the there were guns everywhere because the security. You would need to have security on campus after something like that for the kids to feel safe. Yet some, some students had mixed feelings about that. So you'd walk around and you'd see all of the, the armed guards everywhere and some kids felt okay with that and then you could see some that were needing to avoid it i mean it was a highly emotionally charged time for everyone um but i think that what has come out of it has been um 
that's what makes it okay. That's what makes what we're doing now so important. Something has come out of it. I mean, I know that the people who were there have their own um, push with, you know, gun control and all of that. But for us, the attention for mental health and being able to get in there and supply mental health for students is huge. It was evident um, that the kids had actually had services outside of the school before they had to come back into the school. And I don't know how some of them were able to come back. Mm -hmm. It it was a very traumatizing time. Um, The first day I was there, I was assigned to a classroom. So I had a classroom that nobody could go back in the actual building. I think it was building 12, they called it. But a classroom that had lost some students in the shooting. And so what I remember about that day is sitting there, it was rather uneventful most of the day. But when it came close to the time of day, maybe it was 2.20 or I think it was 2.20 in the afternoon, um, what had been a loud kind of... um, normal classroom experience you know you walk in you've got a certain amount of noise going on in the classroom Mm -hmm. and as it started approaching that time it was just complete silence just complete silence and it took me a minute of looking around like what what just happened but they all knew I mean they were all looking at the clock and they all knew exactly what time that the shooting had happened and they were all just full of anxiety at that point when you said um, what came out of it, you're talking about the Margie Stoneman Douglas Act and the mm-hmm. various um, and the funding and the funding, mm-hmm. and that is what led to the creation of the team you oversee. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that team and what functions sure. it serves? It serves several functions. Um, you've got safety. Obviously, you've got the hardened corners. You've got um, just all kinds of stuff on the safety side. But when you're looking at the mental health side, you have the threat assessment teams, you have um, 20 or 20, was 21, now we're up to 26 mental health facilitators who were hired um, that go into the schools and provide support for students who are high risk. So um, if a student makes a threat to hurt themselves or to hurt someone else, then they come in and they assist. There are already like school counselors are doing a lot of that work as well. Um, But as you know, school counselors have a lot on their plate Mm -hmm. and not always are able to stop and do direct services for students. And the same with school counselors and school psychologists. You know, everybody has their own job description and there aren't that many people who are available to just do counseling. So the facilitators help to fill that gap and they come in and work with those other mental health professionals in the school to provide that support. They can do um, counseling individually. They can do group counseling they do, um, they help run the threat assessment teams. So if a student makes a threat to hurt someone else and they're high risk, then they um, conduct a threat assessment meeting along with the school that is supposed to help keep everybody safe, the student and the staff. So there's 26 mental health facilitators for yes. all of our schools. Yes, and, and some charter. And some charter. And so they're, what, um, what precipitates them do they make regular rounds to schools or is it when a threat is actually, what, how does that, how do they become involved at a school? Sure. They're um, assigned to schools. So one facilitator could have between four and seven schools, depending on the number of students in that school. You know, some have higher numbers, some have lower, depending on high school versus elementary. 
Um, and those are their assigned schools that they visit on a regular basis. So maybe one school per day. Um, and if a student feels, uh, if a, one of the people at the school, like the school counselor, feels that they can be of benefit, then they refer the student for services. Or um, according to our code of conduct, we now have certain infractions that require, it says a student will be referred for mental health services. So in that case, that's where our facilitators step in as well. And what are the services that you provide? Counseling. Um, it can be com um, connecting them to community resources if need be, but basically just counseling. And that can go on for as long as they need, or is there a... Yes, we try. Counseling's not meant to be a lifetime endeavor. Mm -hmm. You know, we hope that we can counsel them and they, they get better and that they no longer need it. So we try to look at six weeks, six to eight weeks per mm -hmm. person um, that needs it, but it just depends on that person and their own growth. This is such a, unless you've had a, a personal experience with this whole system or if your, your child's been involved in, in needing mental health services, it can sound very foreign, you know, like what yeah. hard to conceptualize in your mind, you know, what you're you're dealing with. So could you just walk me through what a, a typical day for a mental health facilitator, facilitator might look like? What are the issues they're responding to and what kind of outcomes are you seeing? Okay. 20% of people have mental illness. I don't know if you're aware of that statistic. And when you look at our school district, we've had about a thousand Baker Acts so far this school year. So the needs are out there. There are a lot of children suffering. And especially now with COVID, I feel like that has really increased the trauma that our kids are experiencing right now. So the issues that we're dealing with mostly are um, anxiety. Anxiety is the number one issue with a lot of the kids. They are anxious about coming to school or they're anxious about not coming to school. You know, we have these e-learners. They're um, anxious about, am I going to die? Is a family member going to die? Some of them have had family members die, um, staff members. So you have a lot of anxiety and then you have other issues, depression. You see a lot of depression in our young children today. You have um, not as much, but you do have some students who have other issues that are more severe, such as schizophrenia, bipolar. So the average day for a facilitator would be going to their assigned school if they don't get a crisis, because all of the facilitators serve on the crisis team. So from day to day, they could receive a call that they need to attend a crisis. So if a normal day, they would go to their school and probably see three or four students um, probably uh, attend a meeting or two. You know, if they need to take one of their students who has a problem-solving team, they mm -hmm. might need to go to a problem-solving team meeting. If a student's been Baker-acted, they might want to get in and work on a safety plan. Um, they might help co-facilitate groups. We do a lot of drumbeat groups, second-step groups, just any type of skill-building groups that they can do with the kids. Mm -hmm. um, they can go into the classroom and help um, teachers if they're dealing with a student who is perhaps experiencing, um, I like to say, dysregulation in the classroom because trauma a lot of times appears as more like a behavioral issue. Mm -hmm. So if a kid is experiencing something in the classroom, the teacher might say, hey, can, can somebody come in and take a look at this kid and let me know if you if the, you think that they could benefit from your service. Mm -hmm. So they can go in and do that as well. 
trauma-informed classrooms. That's another initiative that falls under your purview, and that gets to yes. what you, you just mentioned, that it can trauma can often exhibit itself as a behavior, maybe be misinterpreted as a behavioral issue instead of a problem that a child needs helping help solving, right? Right. So can you tell us about trauma-informed classrooms and how that fits into the whole scheme of mental health services? Sure. Um, trauma-informed schools, we... We look at um, mental health and what can we do to help support these kids. And oftentimes what kids are coming to school with, we, can, we can't imagine. You know, they come to school hungry. They come to school after um, their parent has been um, arrested for domestic violence. They come to school with not wearing clean clothing. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we're not aware of. So it starts with being able to be aware that not all kids come prepared for school. Not all kids are ready to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to be aware of that and then identify what their needs are. So if the kid comes in and you say, something's just not quite right today with Johnny. Johnny is just doesn't seem to be himself. Um, Johnny might easily be triggered by something that you say or do. Mm-hmm. And that is going to appear as if he is acting out behaviorally when really it could be that he didn't sleep or he's hungry or he just needs a moment to be you know, alone with himself and be able to regulate. So we try to work with schools to teach them how to um, give them a safe space, give them a, like a calm corner in a classroom that they can send the child to, which involves them actually teaching regulation skills first and then providing that safe space for the child to be able to go and regulate while they're there. And that's a tough thing to do. It's um, something that we have tried to take out district-wide this year because we know how important it is, especially now. Um, what would a trauma-informed classroom or school, um, what would that look like? What would I see? What would you see? Well, Socrum Elementary is our first trauma-informed school-wide mm-hmm. <laughs> project. And when you walk in there, what you see is you see students who might be dysregulated occasionally, but they know what to do about it. They are aware of what their body does when they're not regulated. And they get up and they go back and they sit in the room and the corner (laughs) and they utilize whatever strategies or whatever is there because every calm corner varies depending on the teacher. We don't tell the teachers, this is what you have to have in your calm corner. We give them ideas, we give them suggestions, we give them uh, materials, and then they create what they want as a classroom, as a teacher, or as the whole classroom. Um, it, For an example, one thing they might see in there is they might have pictures of um, what they look like when they're angry, what they look like when they're sad, what they look like when they're excited. So they're, they're supposed to really get in touch with how they're feeling and then use the strategy like a breathing strategy with the butterfly technique or elongating the exhale, some type of strategy to help them regulate their body. And they walk through that. And then when they're finished, they, they sign off. You know, this is where I started. I started on a five, on a scale of one to five on anger. I am now at a one and I'm ready to come back and work. So that student then just gets up and goes back to their desk and class continues. They're not sent to the office. Um, and they, they, they never miss the, the learning. You know, they're actually in the classroom hearing the learning while they're there. And it's not disrupting the classroom and it's not 
sending them to the office so they're not missing out on instructional time. And they're learning the skill to regulate themselves. The idea being that, well, mental health facilitators, a lot of the work that you do is reacting to what the children are experiencing and how they're displaying it, that trauma-informed classrooms and, and, and schools can help to be proactive and help them learn to manage their emotions and their what they're experiencing so they don't need interventions down the line from your team just to yes. um that just they we haven't taught that in the past i mean i came up through this system i never learned how to regulate myself or identify my um well well, certainly you, you deal with a lot of dire situations. Like you mentioned, I mean, every child has a bad day or something right. they go through. And they now, as part of their educational experience, they'll learn how to identify those emotions mm-hmm. and process them and manage them. How yes. might those skills change life for them? Being able to go in and teach social-emotional learning skills to kids sets them up for what could have been a life of failure, you know, but it sets them up for being able to do anything, anything they put their minds to. Mm-hmm. It They're able to um, regulate their emotions, which then means that they're not necessarily going to blow and they're not going to get themselves. You know, you see people who lose their temper and they're going to end up in jail. Mm-hmm. But if they have the ability to regulate themselves, then they can get out of that bad decision. They can stop themselves before they make a bad decision. They learn people skills. They learn how to communicate with others. They learn how to um, set boundaries. You know, we try to look at those life skills that kids would need to be productive members of society. Mm -hmm. I I always think that these are the kids later on who are going to be voting. These are the kids down the road are going to be taking care of me Mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. I want them to have empathy. I want them um, to be able to to have a job where, you know, they they fit in, where Mm -hmm. they're able to make a productive living. And I see that in a lot of our kids, the resiliency. I mean, you've got these kids that have terrible, terrible circumstances, and yet they come to school they learn, they learn how to regulate themselves, they learn how to be friends with others, and suddenly they're graduating and they're successful. I mean, just the resiliency is incredible. If you can catch them when they're smaller, and like Mm -hmm. you said, that preventative piece, catch them when they're young, give them those skills, then they're going to be set up for success. And they must know themselves on a way, on a level that takes without that that component of their education certainly many adults don't recognize how they're maybe how they're feeling or how their emotions affect their body or how i mean that this it's knowing themselves on a deeper Mm -hmm. level and that awareness yeah Mm um so back just before we move on from trauma-informed classrooms and schools this is this initiative has been in place at Sogrum mm-hmm. for this. This is the first school, and this is the first school year. What are the results? What are what are you seeing happen there at Sogrum? We are excited to say that um, their attendance rate is up, mm-hmm. and their referral rate is down. So the principal is happy. What I have noticed um, from the people who were working on the project, because it is truly a collaboration between um, the mental health department and also social workers and school psychologists and some of SEDNET as well, um, and obviously the school, um, it's a better culture. It's a very, you just walk onto the campus and you can sense it. You can tell they have 
just such a, a respect for one another and for the students. I think that teachers don't realize sometimes that their behavior sets off a child who is experiencing some type of dysregulation. And when you're teaching them to teach their students regulation, they're having to regulate too. So it's kind of a win-win. Mm-hmm. You know, you're teaching the teachers and the students at the same time. And that's that's good. So within mental the mental health department here in Polk County Public Schools, your team of facilitators is handling everything from um, you know, transforming schools to be trauma informed and to there's a crisis on a campus, there's been a death on a campus, and you, you, you deploy and go provide counseling to uh, individual students who have been, who've been identified as needing these services, you're providing services to them, um, among many other things. So I guess, how do you all take care of yourselves? What, what is the, <laughs> this just seems like a daunting, daunting yeah. task that you have, before, and there's only 26 of you. It is, it's been a heavy lift. Um, but I think the key for us has been they lean on each other. They're really good at coming coming to each other and coming to me and saying, this is the situation. Can we talk through it? So there's always that debriefing that goes on that helps. Um, we have a person who does the self-care tips every Friday for everyone. We talk every staff meeting. We break into small groups and just work on what can we do to to make our jobs easier? What can we do to help students individually? What can we do on Friday to um, move on for the weekend and to, you know, put this down and go home and be Mm -hmm. parents, um, wives, (laughs) husbands? Um, Because it is. It's hard. And sometimes it's harder than others. But um, it's all about just self-care and learning, learning how to do that. What is your favorite self-care strategy or what's the one that you rely on most? My favorite one is music. I love to listen to music. I also like fast cars. So I'm going to be honest and say getting into my my car and blaring music and just driving helps me to disconnect from being at work to transition then to being home Mm -hmm. because I need to be a good person when I get home. And so often you do, you bring all of it home with you and your kids and your family get the worst of you. So that has been the biggest lesson is learning how to leave it at work. So you are, you said there were a thousand Baker Acts. There have been a thousand Baker Acts just this school year. And that's just one component of what you're dealing with. So I imagine you and your team, it must just feel like the tsunami every day of work and issues and and students in need and and staff members, teachers in need. Um, How do you find victory in that? What is a, amid all that, the work that seems that it'll never end, um, What's, what's an example of, an, a victor, of a victory that you celebrate? Victory. A victory is when you have a student who is um, in high school and she loses her mom mm-hmm. in the eighth grade uh, and she reaches out for help and you work with her for years. And this is not my story. This is one of my facilitator's stories, by the way. Um, and just amid, amid such loss, um, building her back up and working with her on developing the skills needed to to build new new friends to build new support structures in place around her um and now she's looking at going to prom she's looking at graduation and all of that without mom 
but she now has a new support system around her and is thriving and is just such a picture of resilience. It just amazes me that a kid can come back from all of that and be happy and healthy and ready, ready to graduate and ready to go on. And, and it just inspires me. Um, I always try to remind myself that it just takes one person in a child's life, one. You don't have to be a counselor. You don't mm -hmm. have to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, just letting that child know that you care is all it takes to save a life. And that's why I do what I do. Um, what is the people, more, more, most likely, most people don't have an understanding of day-to-day, -day, the work. I mean, this is going to help, this conversation, but that goes on. What is the, do you think, what's the biggest misconception about mental health services in public schools? And what is the one thing that you would want people, if they could only take one thing away from this podcast, what would it be? Well, I just said that the one person can change a life. That is very important. And I think that the misconception is that we don't have mental health services in schools, and we do. We have them, and we want people to utilize them, and there's no shame. You know, there's that negative stigma with mental illness, and we need to break down that barrier and say it's okay to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And we're here and we want you to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want people to know. We're here. So if someone hears this and it's an mm -hmm. eye-opening um, episode for them, they didn't know the extent, the, the amount of work you're doing or the, the type of situations you're helping with, um, what can just the average person do? Sure. They can attend Youth Mental Health First Aid. Okay. Um, that would help them to understand more about mental illness and what to do when they identify it, how to get someone help. Um, and then just just being aware of, of who we are and how to find us. How do you attend Youth Mental Health First Aid? On NetConnect, you sign up. Right now, I believe we're down to only classes in the summer. Okay. Because That's of good. testing. So any, any Polk County Public Schools employee any. can take that. According to Senate Bill 7026, which is part of what funds this allocation, every school employee, everyone from the district, um, bus drivers, custodians, teachers, paras, everyone is supposed to take the training. Mm -hmm. And so. this helps you to identify mm -hmm. mental health warning signs and conditions. and To identify mental illness, risk factors, and how to refer somebody for help. So mm -hmm. that maybe you can be that one person who... Yes. Um, we try to ask everyone the same final question on this podcast, and that is, what does Christy Olson contribute to Polk County Public Schools that only Christy Olson can? Mm. What do you try to give to us every day? That I try, I try to give my best. I try to show up dedicated and to give my all and just put it out there. I'm just honest and put it out there and hope that people will um, come to me when they, they need help. It's been so, so, it's been such an honor to talk to you and to learn about the work that you and your team does. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. You. Did you change careers to become a teacher, para, or bus driver? Do you remember the moment when you knew a career in education was right for you? Are you a PCPS alumnus who remembers the teacher who made you believe you were capable of great things? Are you a student who is already putting your K-12 education to work in our community? We all have a story to tell, and those stories are part of what makes PCPS great. Tell us yours. To be a guest or to nominate someone you know to be featured on The People of PCPS, 
Fill out the form posted online at polkschoolsfl.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the People of PCPS podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Or watch online at the Polk County Public Schools YouTube channel. To learn more about the People of PCPS and other Polk County Public Schools podcasts, visit polkschoolsfl.com forward slash podcasts.